we're in 1 John 5. 1 John 5. We're picking up where Will left off last week. Let's go ahead and pray, and then uh, we'll, we'll get ourselves started. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we do, we do praise you and thank you, Lord, for speaking to us through your word. And we ask now, Lord, that you would, by your spirit, teach us and lead us, Lord, that you would conform us to the image of your Son, that uh, the areas in which we are not like him, Lord, you would make us like him. And, and Lord, just that we would uh, leave here not just being hearers of your word, but doers as well. Lord, we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so we are in 1 John 5. 1 John Five and First John, just to kind of give us some grounding here, we have to remember as we come to passages in First John that he has a goal in mind of why he wrote the, the book in the first place. That uh, the book is written, and he says this explicitly, he says that he has written this, that, they're, that they might have joy, that they might have the assurance and the confidence in their in that they know the Lord, right? That these are things that he expresses throughout the book. He interjects these kinds of statements here, right? And so when we come to some passages, right, sometimes it's a bit difficult to remember that that is the goal in mind because you're reading and you're wondering, you know, it doesn't feel very assured or maybe I'm feeling a little bit condemned or convicted by this thing. So this is one of those passages, I think, sometimes where people can come to and they can feel like uh, what the Lord is saying is either too challenging or too difficult or it can be misunderstood. But keep in mind that John's message here is one where he is uh, telling us what he's telling us that we might have that confidence before the Lord, that we might have that, that assurance as we progress with him in our walk. So the passage itself, uh, we're picking up in verse 1 of chapter 5. We're getting to go through verse 1 through 5, so we're going about three times as fast as Will normally does. <laughs> but last week, where we ended, so that we kind of know where we're going, right? Last week, there was the, the declaration, really, that the love that God has for us, right, is perfected in us, when we come to that full kind of confidence and assurance before his judgment and then that and that that love that we then have received right from him and that we walk in kind of that fullness of we we give out and it's marked really right it, it, it's manifested in us in that we love the brethren right that this was that the one and the other go hand in hand. They are two sides of the same coin. You cannot claim to love God, to have received his love and to love him in response without having also loved the brethren, that they are essentially equivalent in their nature there. So, so that was the marker, right? And as he continues in chapter 5, he's actually continuing upon the same thought, and he's going to express to us kind of the who we mean by the brethren, right, at the beginning there. And then he's going to also express the how, because there is often the question of what does love look like, right? I think we understand this kind of thought where we're like, oh, I love this person. And sometimes we say, I did this thing out of love. And you're like, well, did but what you did wasn't loving. So, like, was it done out of love? Like, like we're, we're, you know, we, we've run into that kind of situation before. Or maybe you're in a challenging situation where there's somebody who maybe challenges you in a certain way, or maybe they're just kind of like not somebody that's likable. But you're like, but I need to love this 
person and I really have no point of connection or anything on how to, how to do that. So like, what do I do? So we need a how as well. I think sometimes we act like the Lord gives us a lot of motivation for why and things like that and, and kind of impacts us that way with his word. But we neglect sometimes that he is also very much into giving us a how. Right? As a matter of fact, Jesus is specifically a how when we talk about salvation, and we'll get to this, right? Is it he is the way. Like, how do I get to God? I get to him through Jesus. It's not just this is a total side point right now, but it's not just, right, you don't come to the Lord and you don't receive salvation just because you want salvation. And this is again, we'll touch on this a little bit more here in a second, but like when we're talking about like believing upon Jesus, which is what the first thing he's going to state about here, right? It's not just like, hey, I want God to save me, and so he's going to save me. It's not just your desire to be forgiven that makes you forgiven. It's that in that desire, you come to him through the means by which he says to come through. It doesn't really matter if, if you think the Lord loves you if you don't think he loves you in the person of Jesus Christ. And so... All that to say, it's important to stick there within the confines of, of what he says. But coming to verse 1 here, coming to verse 1. That was totally not the way I started the first service. So uh, <laughs> uh, coming to verse 1, it says here, I'm going to read through all the verses and then I'm going to come back and highlight some things. Whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. Everyone who loves him who we got also loves him who is begotten of him. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and keep his commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments. And his commandments are not burdensome. For whatever is born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is he who overcomes the world but he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? So like I said, so he opens up and he's continuing this thought of the necessity of those who love God to love the brethren. And he's going to clarify a little bit for us what we mean by the brethren. Right, Because uh, he says here, whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. So there are those who are born of God. And how are they marked? And who are they? Well, they, it is whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ. Anyone, anywhere at all who believes that Jesus is the Christ. Now, what we want to do is we want to clarify some things here. Right? Because, because we read things in John, particularly in, in, when, in 1 John here, where he says things and he just like breezes through this statement and then he like continues on to the next thing. You're like, I'm not sure I understood what you said. Danielle and I, when we were going through our physics grad school experience, there's a volume of physics textbooks and when you're a nerd like we like both of us are, we have like preferences for textbooks, right? And I know not everybody like enjoys reading textbooks, but like, give me a good physics textbook, I'll sit down, I'll read it, you know what I mean? Um, <laughs> But anyway, it's not as exciting as I made it sound. But, <laughs> um, right. Now, there's this volume of, of textbooks, right, that's called the Landau Lifshitz um, physics textbooks. And they are less textbooks and more reference books because they're so dense. You read one sentence and you go, hmm, that was very interesting. And then you go to the next sentence and he's not talking about the same thing anymore. You're like, oh, that's weird. Is he going to explain what he, he said here? And then, no, he's not, right? In uh, his explanation, usually, within those textbooks, he says some, uh, some crazy statement about physics, and then he goes, it's trivially known that this and this and that. And you're like, that didn't seem trivial to me at all. 
I'm pretty sure I didn't actually understand a word that you said. You know, <laughs> whatever. I guess uh, I guess that's just physics. But no, but sometimes John does that, and then he says something that's profound and it's deep, and there's so much to it. And then you read it and you go on. And you're like, yeah, I got it. And then like you think about it for like five more seconds. You're like, no, I don't actually know what you said. So, and so we're we're gonna take time because this passage, though it's short. Right There is so much in here, so many things that are important to really get a, a handle on in here. So this first statement here, whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God, as we're clarifying what it means to be a son of God, right? this word believe is derivative of the same word used for faith. And so it's not just, it's not just like an intellectual affirmation, it's not just a, a public statement Right? It's not just, I asked a person some questions and they signed off on the checkbox that, yes, Jesus is the Son of God, yes, Jesus died for my sin. It's not that. It's far more than that. Because when it talks about this word, which is derivative of the word for faith, what it's talking about is to be fully convinced. To be fully convinced of something. To the degree, or James 2 makes this clear, the, the convincing is to the degree that it influences, I pronounced that so weirdly, influences, right? <laughs> influences the actions you take. It influences the actions you take, right? Romans 4, and you can just turn with me there real quick, real quick, just as an aside. Uh, Romans 4 gives us kind of a working definition of, of faith itself and belief and what it looks like and what it manifests itself in. Uh, because it paints for us that picture with Abraham, with Abraham, who, you know, essentially is the father of, of faith. He's really the person who was given a promise by the Lord, and he responded to that and acted in accordance with it. Look, here with me in Romans 4, when we begin in verse uh, 16, let me just read through and then I'll highlight. It says, Therefore it is of faith, the promise, that it might be according to grace, so that the promise might be sure to all the seed, not only to those who are the law, but all who are of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all, as is written, I've made you a father of many nations, in the presence of him whom he believed. And this is what Abraham believed about God. He's a God who gives life to the dead and calls those things which do not exist as though they did. Abraham, again, continuing, who contrary to hope, in hope believed, so that he became the father of many nations. And then here in verse 19 really gives us this really great understanding. And not being weak in faith, he did not consider his own body already dead and the deadness of Sarah's womb. He did not waver at the promise of God through unbelief, but he was strengthened in faith, being fully convinced that what God had promised, he was able to perform. Right? Being fully convinced that what God had promised, he was able to perform, and it therefore led him to action. You see, this is what we're talking about. We're talking about belief in the Bible. It's not just like, yeah, I have a plaque that says Jesus is the Son of God, right? It's every action I take is premised upon the promise of God. And so, what is it that we believe, right? We believe that Jesus is the Christ. This term Christ is the messianic title reserved by the Jewish 
people group to speak of the one whom was the Holy One of God. The one set apart, the anointed one, is what it literally translates to. It means that God has promised the world some person who is the central character in all of his activity and salvation. And that Jesus is that person. Nobody else is that person. And his testimony that Jesus is that person is what we live our life by. Jesus is the Savior of the world. And I think sometimes we kind of limit that role a little bit. Right? We're like, yeah, he justifies us from our sins. Jesus isn't just the justifier of sins. He's the central character in every activity involved in salvation. He is the justifier. He is the sanctifier. He is the redeemer. He's the coming king. He is every time there is something important to be done in salvation and God's dealing with man, it is through the person of Jesus Christ. And we believe that. And we believe that. Right? Do we believe that? Right? Do you actually walk fully convinced that that is indeed the case? Because if you do, you got the title, you're born of God. Right? You're born of God. You are birthed from Him. And everyone who loves Him, that is God, right? everyone who loves Him, loves uh, Him who begot, so this is God, also loves Him who is begotten of Him. It's the same statement that he made previously, right? That if you love God, you love the brethren. Why? Because we have the same parentage. My parents were big, big on when I was growing up. They're always like, Justin, you got to love your brother. You're like, well, why? Well, because he's your brother. <laughs> you know, I was like, yeah, but he's, he's annoying. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> well, like, yeah, but he's still your brother. And John is, is telling us here that our common parentage in the Lord is something that we need to embrace as being like, well, you need to love your brother. You need to love your brother. If you really do love God as you say you do and therefore are born of him, then you love everyone who else is also born of him, regardless of race, socioeconomic status, any political difference. And none of those things matter if the confession is that that other person is fully convinced that Jesus is the Christ. Right? That's enough for you and for me to do this commandment. Right? To commit to doing that commandment. Now, when we go to that kind of thing and we, we think about it, we have to ask ourselves, and this is why John kind of begins to explain in the how process here, we get stuck on what that looks like. I mean, God makes the command pretty often. He says things really, love somebody, do this, right? And you're like, cool, I will go love them. And then we get inundated with things from the world. We get inundated with our own personal experience. And we mix all this up and we throw out there some definition of love. And we think this is what God is calling us to. And so what we need to understand is that what he's calling us to is the love that he specifically has demonstrated in the person of Christ. It's not calling us to anything less than that. 
that what we are to demonstrate is this love that is sourced from him, given to us, and then given through us to others. And Will often talks about this love, and he uses the, the God's loyal love, or he talks about it, and we note that it's got the sacrificial nature to it. I like to define it in this way to help give me kind of a footing for how to uh, think of it as, as it gets used in, in context here. It is, this is a bit of a long definition, so if you're taking notes, like, just try to keep up. Um, <laughs> right. It is the self-determined willingness to constantly give the best of one's own resources for the highest benefit of the recipient. That was, like, a lot to say, but let me try it again. It is the self-determined willingness to constantly give the best of one's own resources for the highest benefit of the recipient. This is precisely what Jesus did in, this is precisely what God did in the person of Jesus. That of his own will, apart from our desire for him, right, this is why it says, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He initiated an action whereby he would give the greatest of what he had to us for what purpose to give us the highest benefit we could ever receive that we would be like Jesus be made sons and heirs to draw us back to himself God his love is so unique it stands in stark contrast to the things that we say are loving. Because if we're honest, most of our interactions of love are not self-determined in that sense. Right? They are reciprocal. They are responsive. They are mutual. Right? That we only love those who also love us. We only respond to those who respond to us. And everyone else gets something less. But this is not what God's love is like at all. It consistently, from his own nature, pours itself out to the benefit of those who receive it. We say that, we like, okay, but like, who could do that? Only God. Only God. And so we want to sit here and, and then, as John explains... That's such a hard thing, and he knows it's such a hard thing. He's like, by this we know that we love the children of God. He's like, how, how can I possibly be confident in that I am loving to this degree? Because honestly, I have no confidence that, I'm ever, that I've ever loved anybody to this degree. I love my wife. I'm not sure I've ever loved her to this degree. Because that love is so different than anything I know. So where can we find the confidence in that? Well... We know that we love the children of God when, two things, when we love God and when we keep His commandments. We love God and we keep His commandments. He reduces this really difficult kind of thing to kind of express within yourself that could honestly be a source of like stress in your own life, being like, who knows what I'm doing today, right? And he's like, look, think of these two things. Think of these two things. We know we love the brethren when, when we love God, and when we keep his commandments. A note on when we love God. We've kind of spoken often about this, but Will specifically spoke about this last week. When we see just above, in, ver in chapter 4, verse 19, we love him because he first loved us. 
Like we have to know that even though I gave the definition of agape love as being this self-determined willingness and whatever, right? When we're talking about our relationship to the Lord, the initiator is Him. Our love is always a responsive love to God. Always a responsive love. And our love only grows to the degree that we respond to His love. And so what we have to note here is that if we want to have confidence in how we're loving the children of God, then we must grow in our knowledge of God's love for us. Because it's God's love for you that will drive you into the second part, which we'll get to. But it's God's love, it's God's love for you that will motivate this, the second half of this verse. A quick note on growing in God's love for you. Something that will get in the way, absolutely get in the way of you recognizing God's love for you is best expressed through this story of Jesus and Simon, a Pharisee, a religious leader, right? Uh, so Jesus had dinner with many people very often, right? Like Zacchaeus, he did that. And like, right? One such instance, he's with this Pharisee, they're gathered around in walks what is known in the community to be a sinner, sinful woman, right? Sinful woman, which when you're talking about if the community knows that you're in sin and you're a woman in that time, there's like not many options for like what kind of sinner you are, right? So this woman comes up and she enters in, she knows Jesus is there and she begins washing his feet with her tears in her hair, Right? Simon, who's like religious and proud of his self-righteousness, right? He looks at this and he looks at Jesus and he thinks to himself and he says, if Jesus knew who this woman was, he wouldn't allow such a thing to happen. Jesus says, perceiving his thoughts, right? He, he then tells a story, gives a little Jesus, Jesus story time, right? It's one of his favorite techniques for, giving a, for teaching a lesson, right? Is, is he tells a story. So he says to uh, Simon, he's like, hey, I got a story for you. Again, this is the paraphrased version, right? This is not exactly how he said it, but um, uh, he says, you know, I've got a story for you. And, and, you know, Simon's like, hey, yeah, sure, go ahead. I can do this. I can, I can listen to, to what you're saying. And, and Jesus, he says, you know, there's a master. He had two servants who both owed him a debt. One a lot, one a little, right? right 550, the diff- right? It's, it's astronomical differences here, right? You know, it's like if I owed you a dollar and somebody else owed you a million, right? You know, like, like there's, there's, there's big debt, little debt. He says the master decides to just forgive both of them completely, the entirety of their debt. And he follows up, who do you suppose will love the master more? And and Simon's like, suppose uh, the one who is forgiven the more debt. He says, you have rightly said that the one who is forgiven more, he who is forgiven much loves much. And then he goes on to this little side tangent, not really a side tangent, it's the main point of what he's trying to say. Right? He looks at this woman and he's like, you, you didn't do anything for me when I came in to wash my feet or anything, and yet, since she has come, she has not ceased from washing my feet with her tears. And he's pointing out the love that she has for him versus the love that he has for him are two vastly different things because her knowledge of her sinfulness before Jesus is greater than his knowledge of his sinfulness before Jesus. Now, it's not that she is a greater sinner. 
they are both great sinners. It's not that you need to go out and live a life of repugnant sin and, and, then, and then come back and be like, now I can love Jesus properly, <laughs> right? It's that you have to embrace the truth and the reality that you are a sinner who is only saved by grace and that you are a desperate sinner, right? And you have to kind of sit in that place, right? Like Paul, who is probably the more spiritual of the people we could ever think of, we're like, there's Jesus, there's Paul. <laughs> like if there was anybody who was basically like Jesus, it was Paul. When he describes himself in his letters, he never says, I am Paul, the apostle who is the most spiritual of all. He never says, I am the one who loves God with everything in his being. And, and No. He describes himself and he says, I am the chief of sinners. He says, I am the least of the apostles. He says things that like, he's writing, and, and even Peter, when he describes what Paul writes, he's like, some of the things Paul writes are hard to understand. Uh, so this guy, he's like on a whole nother level of like connection to the Lord as far as he understands. And he describes his understanding of the love of God, and he goes, see as in a mirror dimly. There's no pride there. There's just the recognition that he is a sinner saved by grace. And if you will not receive that testimony of the Lord, that that's who you are, you will always doubt the love of God for you. You see, the world has it a little bit backwards. The world likes to say, well, you're worthy of God's love and this kind of thing, or you're worthy of whatever love is. And, that, that you, and, and it's backwards. It's in the recognition of your unworthiness that you receive the full measure of understanding of just how much he loves you and therefore find the freedom there. Right? So if we want to grow in that love of God, we want to, we want to grow really in in an understanding of just how far he went to save us. But as we continue, so we need to mark that down, right? That this is, you love the brethren by growing in your own sense of, of the love of God for you and therefore uh, your reciprocal love to him and in your commitment to, to him, that that will manifest itself in you loving the brethren. But uh, secondly, uh, we keep his commandments. We keep his commandments, is there what it says? And it's worth noting that it follows that it, it follows the other one, because you cannot do the one before you do the other. You cannot do the one before the other. Romans one is a wonderful chapter. I mean, some people think it's like a terrible chapter because there's a lot of sin that's described there. But it's a wonderful chapter because it really brings to light a couple of things concerning sin and the progress there. You can read on your own time if you begin in Romans one eighteen and you just track on down through the end. But it mentions that the first real indictment that the Lord has against all unrighteousness and ungodliness that pervades inside of man is that they suppress the truth. And specifically, when you get down to verse 21, it says that they, though they knew God, they did not glorify him as God. And so there's this disconnect in how they relate to God. There's not the proper valuing of who God is based on who he really is. They don't glorify him as the person who he really is. They treat him as if he's something else. And then we get this progression, and it says that he gave them up to futile thoughts. They changed the image of God into a creature, blah, blah, blah. And then it gets to, 
And then I mean, continuing in that, persisting in that, even as they didn't like to contain God in their knowledge, it says that he gave them up to dishonoring themselves. You see, the treatment of people is after the treatment of God. We are disconnected in how we appropriately treat people because we are disconnected in how we relate to the Lord. And so it is of primary importance, and why it's placed first here, that you love God in order to love the brethren, right? Because you have zero tools to otherwise do so. But primarily because, think about this, you will never value a human being appropriately if you don't value them the way God does. And you will never understand the value that God places upon a human being if you don't understand who he is in his love. Never. That you will reduce a human being to something other than what God has declared. Right? Something lesser, something of lesser value. When he has placed the highest possible value, he gave his son. There is nothing greater God could have given. So, relationship to other people flows from our relationship to the Lord and only flows properly from there. But this keep his commandments, it's a bit of a <laughs> scary verse, right? Sometimes we say, we, we read that, we said, this is the love of God that we keep his commandments and his commandments are not burdensome. That like doubly terrifies us because we read those words and we think to ourselves like all of the, the Christian like flasher trigger warnings all, all come out where they're like, but it's not of works. <laughs> like, oh no, what is going on? I'm not supposed to be working for salvation. You're not working for salvation. That's not what this is about at all. First off, we should note that the word keep is not the word to, to it's, not, it's not saying that I perfectly do something precisely. That's not, what it's, that's not the word. The word means to vigilantly observe and pay attention to, specifically as if to be guarding, to guard over. Uh, so what he's calling us to is, is that we pay close attention to the commands of the Lord. It's not the, the precise and perfect obedience. It's, it's the persistent and purposeful observance. It's about focusing on what he says. And so when we focus in on what he says, this is how we love the brethren. When we focus in on the command, and it's worth noting that the command is not just like, oh, so like the Levitical law, so like we like focus in, focus in on that. No, we have to understand the entirety of the testimony of the Lord here in his, in his word, right? It's not, it's not a list of do's and don'ts that he's calling us to focus our attention on. That's not what he's saying, right? Because a great passage, John 6, read it, and again, I love just be like a Berean, go read on your own time, you know what I mean? Like, <laughs> right, but John 6, Jesus is talking to the people, he's talking about some pretty confusing things as far as like bread and his flesh and things like that. But in the middle of that, before he gets into that kind of thing, he, there's the, they ask him a question like, what must we do that we might work the works of God? It's a pretty good question, right? I feel like asking that question all the time, like, Lord, what should I do? Jesus is like, this is the work of God that you believe upon his son. It's the commandment is reduced. The law is done away with. 
that we might, not that we might like not do the things in the law, but that we might have power to fulfill the law in a greater way by believing upon the Son. That we have to recognize that this call to keep the commandment is primarily a call to believe upon the Son. That is the, that is the great thing to be invested in doing. And then within that, within that, to understand that that means that you also then place high importance on what he says. Because Jesus has told us things. Jesus has told us what to do while we're here. Jesus has told us how we can have access to the grace of the Lord. Jesus has told us how we're forgiven. And so we have to pay attention to what he has said. Right, we have to pay very, very close attention to what he said, not get distracted by all the other voices that tell us other things, even the things that sound like Jesus, that sound to us like Jesus. One such instance that I want to focus on is this notion of kind of like the political oppression and the, and the, the culture wars, we might call them, culture wars that, that persist and those kinds of things. Because Jesus, when he's talking with his disciples at the Last Supper, John 15 through 16, John 15 and 16, 14, 15, 16, this is after Judas is gone, so it's just the 11, and he's telling them some pretty important things. Telling them things like, you have to abide in me. This is where we get the passage of the vine and the, the branches, the things of uh, the promise of the helper, the Holy Spirit. And then he also says, within this passage, he says, you're going to be persecuted. But like all throughout this, he mentions that the reason that he's telling them these things beforehand, he's like, I tell you that you're going to be persecuted. I tell you this beforehand so that way you'll believe on me. He also tells you that you might have your joy fulfilled. He also tells them that you might have peace. And he doesn't tell us what the world will be like when he's gone so that way we can fight what he has said. I think sometimes we sit and we're surprised that the culture is the way that the culture is. And we think, well, the Lord wants me to change the culture. No, the Lord gave you a promise to, to preserve you through the culture. It's very different. It's very different. But it's something that we only embrace if we pay attention to what he said. Because quite frankly, it sounds good to, to fight to change the culture and to hope that we, we can do do all these things. Now, I'm not saying, like, you know, don't be, don't be concerned with those things because we have the responsibility and the ability. Some people don't have the ability to, to, to cast a vote that matters. So, cast a vote that matters. But, like, guess what? The world is going to reject the Lord. And the Lord did not say, you need to change that. He said, you need to persevere through it. Two very different things. Two very different things. Anyway, continuing on. This is the love of God that we keep his commandments, that we pay attention to what he has declared and told us to do, and that his commandments are not burdensome. His commandments are not burdensome. Now, this one's always a super challenging thing because you're like, well, Justin, they're hard. <laughs> they are actually pretty hard commandments, right? And you're like, well, yeah, I get that. They're, they're, they're hard. He's not saying that they're not hard. He's not saying that like the Christian, you can be a Christian and then you're going to live your life and you're going to be like, man, following Jesus is just, it's so easy. It's so easy. I have no trouble doing it ever at any time, right? No, that's not what he's saying. Why? Because the word burdensome is the word weight 
or burden, and Jesus himself uses the word often when he describes what the Pharisees do to the people. And so really its context lies, uh, when, when we're talking about spiritual matters, it's talking about putting this weight that creates that sense of that separation. You see, we can often treat our Christian life like keeping His commandments are a matter of our justification. As if obeying Him perfectly, or whether or not we're doing so or not, somehow means that God is now against us. And and that we feel the pressure of that. We feel the weight, we feel the tiredness of that. But man, Jesus said, Jesus said in Matthew 11, describing specifically those who want to know the Father, he says, the only one who knows the Father is me and and to whom I reveal it. And then what does he say? So come to me, all you who labor are heavy laden and and weary and and find find your rest. He's like, look, I'm not putting a burden on you where it's one that separates you from the Lord. Now I am calling you to work with me, though. He says, yoke with me. A yoke is a working tool. He's not calling you to not work on it, to not work it out. But he's calling you to yoke with him. And he says, what does he say? He says, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Guys, There is a work to be done in the Lord. There is a battle to be fought. There is an intensity with which we should be like pursuing the following of his commands, but not for the sake of convincing ourselves that we are right before him. Only for the sake of us responding in love to participate with our Father in the work which he is also doing. We have to embrace that. That's what is meant by the, the command isn't burdensome. It's, not a, it's, it's, it's no burden at all to do the work if the work is a work of love. Kobe Bryant, one of my favorite basketball players, unfortunately probably not saved, so I probably won't ever see him again, but who's to say? But uh, he was an intense, intense guy, intense guy. Anybody who, who was around him, other basketball players, they were like, yeah, this guy works really hard, right? And Kobe's documentary, you know, some people come out with documentaries and, and, and they have like a title to like talk, talk about them. Like Steph Curry is coming out with one uh, soon and it's called like the, the underdog guy or whatever, right? You know, because you know, he's a little guy, nobody thought he would be good. Kobe's is called Kobe doing work because everybody knows Kobe does work. Because, uh, you know, you got a story, him with the USA men's basketball team back on, they called it the redeem team because for one year in the Olympics, we lost in basketball to somebody else. That's unfathomable, really, by like American standard of basketball. But anyway, so the next following time, they, they got Kobe on the team, and they got some other guys, and they whatever. And, and these guys, they're out partying, drinking, doing their thing, and, and, and they come back because they know they got practice the next day, and, they, and they're coming into the lobby, and they see Kobe. They're coming in, it's like 4 in the morning, and they see Kobe, he didn't go out with them. He's headed, he's got his towel, he's, he's headed to the gym. He's headed to the gym. And the, the team in the documentary, the team is like, man, these, maybe we should 
maybe we should take it that seriously, right? Why would he take it that seriously? Why would he devote himself that much? Because he loved it. Because it was his passion for it that drove the intensity of his work. It wasn't that the work wasn't hard. It's that he was glad to be doing the hard work. And look, with the Lord, it's not that the work isn't hard. It's that we're happy to be spent for his purposes. We are well pleased to suffer for for him. We want to sit and do what he wants to do because what he wants to do is awesome and he loves us. Now, in light of that, in light of us doing that, that will constantly be challenged. Uh, for, for whatever is born of God overcomes the world. And what is the victory that overcomes the world? Our faith. Look, you only really can do this to the degree that your faith is being exercised in God. You're not, you're not going to keep on keeping on doing this without faith. And, and, and it is the presence of your faith that will lead you to overcome. It is your faith in God, in the fact that he loves you, and the fact that your work is not a work unto salvation, but a work from a place of salvation, right? But it is, is that belief in Jesus as the Christ that will sustain you and keep you as you go on and on. Because the world, the devil, he will challenge he will challenge every part of your faith. He will challenge, but God won't let you down. You're going to overcome, right? Because you are trusting in the living God. Uh, uh, hear me out. The devil is not concerned primarily. When we talk about him being a murderer, a liar, a thief. He is not primarily concerned with harming you physically or causing you emotional distress. What he's primarily concerned with is breaking your faith in the Lord. Whether that involves physically harming you or giving you emotional distress, that's a tool at his disposal, for sure. But so is giving you riches or distracting you with concerns and, con uh, and cares of this life. He doesn't care which way it goes as long as you're worshiping him and not worshiping God. Uh, he tempted Jesus... And he offered him the world. All the kingdoms of the world. That's a crazy offer. I think sometimes we like to think, we're like, well, yeah, if I have faith in God, then, uh, you know, uh, he's gonna, I'm gonna, things are going to go well for me. You know who can offer for you for things to go well for you by the world standards? The devil can offer for things to go well for you. Things going well for you isn't a measure of whether or not you're following the Lord. Like the devil will use whatever tool he has to break this faith that you have in, in the Lord, to break your belief in Jesus being the Son of God. That's what he says in the next part, that who is he who overcomes, but he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. He wants you to embrace that somebody else is the Son of God. He wants you to embrace that you don't need God. He wants you to embrace that Jesus isn't who he said he was. He wants you to embrace a different version of Jesus. Anything he can do, that's not true of you. Right? But look, you're born of God. You're keeping his commandments. You're, you're just responding to his love and you just keep doing that, man, you're going to overcome. He can't break that in you because God is at work in you in his spirit. 
And greater is he who is within you than he who is in the world. It doesn't really matter that the devil wants to break your faith. He who is born of God overcomes. Period. So we can rest knowing that as we love the brethren by loving God, keeping his commandments, that is us exercising our faith and that the Lord will sustain us. We can just sit in that confidence. One more note on this, uh, on this thing as we close and the worship team starts coming up forward. Keeping his commandments. I think we, read, we hear that and we, there's like, for instance, when Jesus says, if you, if you love me, keep my commandments, right? This, he says that, that phrase itself. And we often hear that and we view it in a negative term, right? in like a, a negative light of like, oh, that sounds... Again, it might sound a bit legalistic. Like we like to use, we like to throw around that word a little bit. Right? It sounds legalistic, as if, as if God, who's like the one who's informed us what legalism is, is being legalistic. On another side point. But anyway, go back with me to our uh, our scripture reading in, in John twenty one, because there is a beauty in that. All he's asking us to do is keep his commandments. There is a, a freedom and a, and a security in all that he's saying is, is to keep his commandments. Uh, when they had eaten breakfast, Simon, Jesus said to Simon Peter, this is where our scripture reading, John 21, verse 15. Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me more than these? There's the question of the love. There's the question of what is lovingness towards God. And Peter is in a place where that, that is a really legitimate question. Right? Because Peter, at, to this point, had, by his measure, probably the greatest failure of his life. Right? He told Jesus he would die for him, and he denied Jesus three times to a little servant girl. Like, wow. Right? And now Jesus is back, and, you know, Peter, reasonably so, is like, well, I blew it. Right? And Jesus is here talking to him, and he says, do you love me? And he uses the word agape, that, that word agape that we've been talking about. And Peter, who I'm pretty convinced is well attuned to his own failure, right, doesn't make the commitment to agape. He knows better now. He's like, I did before, like, say I would die for you. He's like, I'm not going to say that I have that kind of sacrificial love for you because surprise, I don't, right? Like, I didn't. I thought I did, I didn't. So he's like, you know that I love you. He's like, I've got a brotherly love for you. I've got a familial kind of affection for you. I'm willing to, I, I can at least recognize that I have that within me for you. Look at what Jesus says. He just says to him, feed my lambs. He doesn't challenge that. He doesn't ask him for more. He says to him a second time, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me? Again, asking about the agape love. Peter again responds, you know that I love you with the phileo love. And again, Jesus doesn't challenge it, doesn't uh, question what's going on there. And he just says, tend my sheep. And then he says to him a third time, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me? And this time he reduced it to, to phileo. Right? This time he didn't ask him if you're sacrificially willing to love me unto the point of death or whatever. He's like, do you have brotherly affection for me, right? And Peter says he was grieved because this third time he had asked him, do you fillet with me? Peter said to him, said to Jesus, Lord, you know all things. You know that 
I love you. He's like, who's to say, Jesus? You're the one who knows. I tried the whole thing of telling you how much I loved you, and that didn't work out so hot. So you know, uh, you know, you know my love for you. You know what I have to give. You know the extent of the love that I have to, to give. And Jesus just says to him, feed my sheep. Guys, the command to keep his commands as an act of love is such a beautiful, simple security. Because he's not asking us to drum up some great uh, uh, thing to say, oh, this is how I show you that I love you, Lord. He's not asking us to, to, to be like Peter previously was and be like, yeah, you love me? Well, then what are you going to do for me? I'm going to die for you, Lord. I'm going to go out and I'm going to... No, right? He's, he's not... He's like, how about this? Just do what I say. Just be about what I want to be about doing. Feed my sheep, Peter. You, you don't... It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if your love, your love for him is an insufficient love because it's his love for you that progresses you, right? Look, Peter, you don't need to have that love for me right now, but can you just do what I ask because I love you? And can you rest knowing that I love you and that it's enough to just do what I say? Guys, there's such simplicity, such security, such assurance. You don't have to question. You don't have to wonder. You don't have to invent. You just have to listen. Right? That's it. You just have to listen. And it's beautiful. And it's something that he's empowered us to be able to do by his spirit. So we can, we can rest assured and we can love the brethren by loving God and keeping his commandments. Let's pray. I think I asked the worship team to come up a long time ago, but I don't know. <laughs> Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you, Lord. We do praise you and thank you for who you are. We thank you for your goodness and kindness to us in Christ Jesus. We thank you for your love. Lord, we thank you that you've given us your Son, Lord, and and that in that, Lord, we have all that we need to obey you, to to follow after you. And Lord, so uh, help us to increase in our love for you and, and increase in our our obedience of you, Lord. Uh, Lord, we want to be conformed to the image of your Son. We just uh, thank you that you give us your Spirit, Lord, and ask you to go before us and and just uh, keep working uh, in us. Lord, we love you, we praise you, and we thank you. It's in Jesus' name. Amen.